This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we are going to be discussing new data on mortality from smoking and the benefits from quitting. How are you today, Sonia? I'm doing great. How are you doing, John? Just living the dream, enjoying the summer weather. Anything new in your side of the woods in terms of addiction medicine? Well, there was something new I wanted to share with our audience. So this is kind of depressing, but also was very informative. I wanted to share some data from one of the recent CDC's MMWR reports. That's the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. The one from April 28th, 2023 was about fentanyl versus heroin in our illicit drug supply. I don't know about you, but here's a question. When was the last time a patient who was using illicit opiates, you know, powder opiates, tested positive for heroin in your practice or opioids on our urine drug screen? That's a good question. I don't think it's actually uncommon for me for them to test positive for opioids, but I think that has to do with our location to Baltimore with a lot of them using these scrambles that are kind of a mix. So I think there's still is some opioid in there, but clearly there's also like fentanyl, which isn't detected in many cases. But I think that's just a relationship to kind of our local supply. How about you? Yeah, I've been seeing very few people who test positive for opioids. I see a lot of people who they know they're using opioids, but their urine drug screens are completely negative because our in-office tests don't test for fentanyl. And I have very few patients who are taking heroin that they know is heroin. I want to say in the last year or two, I've had almost no heroin testing at all. Almost everyone is injecting fentanyl who I'm seeing. And so I have a few patients taking oxycodone, but usually they're pretty close to a prescribed source. Like they get the prescription themselves or from a family member. The rest are all fentanyl. So this was data about that. The data set was from Maryland, actually, like you said, Baltimore. And they tested 496 samples of illicit drugs, 74% of which were positive for opioids. 74% had opioids in them. These were all drugs that were supposed to be opioids. Of those, 98.9% tested positive for fentanyl or a fentanyl analog. So almost 100% and only 1.9% contained heroin. Also 80.5% contained some xylazine. So the xylazine contamination was just pretty ubiquitous. I don't test for xylazine in our office either, but this confirms what we've seen of the drug supply. I think in my area a few years now, it's kind of frightening. So I just wanted to say, be safe out there, people. It's all fentanyl or has some fentanyl in it. I think that this was inevitable, right? From a supply and demand perspective, right? Fentanyl is just a better product to sell, right? Shorter acting people, instead of using two to three times a day, they're using 14 to 15 times per day. It's not surprising that kind of the distributors would kind of favor this for profits and kind of to make more money. Unfortunately, it makes our job harder for so many reasons. I think the other thing that makes it a more desirable product compared to heroin is that it's manufactured completely in a lab or in a factory. There's no agricultural basis for it, unlike heroin, which has to start with poppies. And so you're dependent on farmers and the weather and stuff has to be shipped around the world. And, you know, it's disrupted by all kinds of things. And so fentanyl is just made entirely in a lab. And so I think it's cheaper probably to manufacture as well as being more potent. You know, we we kind of thought that this might happen. And this is just confirmation that this really is where we are, almost 100% fentanyl in our illicit opioid supply. John, anything you want to share with our listeners today? Yeah, so I think we've talked about this before about psychedelics. So psychedelics are certainly an area of 
public interest that seems to be growing quite a bit. Previously, we talked about how uh, in Oregon, they were legalizing psychedelic use for basically to be used not with like a counselor. I think they use the term um, a, a median or a, uh, a facilitator was, I believe, the term. So someone that was licensed to be with you while you take a medication or take psychedelics for medicinal purposes or alleged medicinal purposes. Well, now California has a bill on the table. It's called SB 58. And basically kind of the first step towards legalization that they're looking for is basically to decriminalize uh, psilocybin specifically. And so this law only applies to psilocybin, not any synthetic psychedelic like LSD or DMD. And basically the way it's worded is that they're going to legalize the preparation, possession, obtaining transfer or transportation of a determined amount of psilocybin. And so it hasn't passed yet, but certainly it seems to be a growing body of push to get this done. I think at least I personally kind of look at this kind of emergence of psychedelics, sort of like medicinal marijuana. It seems like it's got a lot of lay press behind it that's really pushing it forward. There are some limited studies, although we've covered actually, I think one of the highest impact articles last year was the one about using it for alcohol use disorder and when you actually look about the evidence for how these are used from medicinal standpoints, they're highly intensive, often paired with, with dozens of hours of counseling simultaneously. And so I don't think that that's kind of how this is going to be intended to be used. But certainly, I think we're going to see more of this, unfortunately. Or maybe fortunately, who, do, who am I? But it sounds like a problem waiting to happen in some regards. Yeah, we haven't covered a lot of articles about psychedelics because, you know, the very definition of substance use disorder includes a concept that the substance is harming you. And so articles about psychedelics used in therapeutic contexts don't really address harm. They're more about the benefits. So we don't really cover those. Um, But I definitely see my patients using psychedelics in ways that are harmful to them. And I think as it becomes legal and more kind of out in the open, maybe we'll see a few more people suffering some of the adverse consequences of psychedelics. And um, maybe there'll be some research on how to help with that. It certainly seems like a Pandora's box waiting to happen, at least, because the existing evidence is very small studies. And I think to kind of, on a large scale, start to decriminalize or legalize these without kind of more additional research. I think I'm, I'm just anxious for where the future's going with this. Well, and the publicity around them is so positive, but I actually personally know several people with significantly negative psychedelic experiences, um, long-term kind of PTSD flashbacks from psychedelics or just really, really negative experiences from using them. It was not a very fun experience. So I think the publicity is uniformly positive, but that's not everybody's experience. So I do think we have to be careful with them. Well, let's talk about, we had an interesting article tonight, kind of very practical for kind of both our addiction medicine uh, listeners, but also just kind of any general primary care doctors or, or medical doctors here in the audience today. Yeah. So this is an article about smoking and we don't talk about tobacco use as much or as much as we should. I think in addiction medicine, it's not new. It's less dramatic. It's, I don't want to say it's not as sexy as other drugs. None of them are sexy at all, but it's just such a part of American society and has been for so long. We sometimes just forget about it as an issue, but actually tobacco is one of the biggest problems in addiction medicine. You know, it's just a huge problem and it's a highly addictive substance with very few benefits. So that's why I wanted to talk about it. The title of this article was Association Between Smoking, 
Smoking Cessation and Mortality by Race, Ethnicity, and Sex Among U.S. Adults. It was published in the JAMA Network Open in 2022. So let's talk about the background. First, I want to start with some good news, and that is that smoking rates are at the lowest they've been in 50 years. So people are smoking less overall, and about 60% of smokers have quit smoking. Bad news, smoking causes 530,000 deaths in the U.S. each year. Smoking is just really bad for you. It kills you, and more people smoke than should. I do know that many of my patients who smoke are interested in learning about the true harms of smoking and are interested in quitting. They've heard all the public health messaging about how bad it is, but then they've seen people in their own lives who smoke and are fine, and they wonder what the harms really are. They wonder if this public health messaging is just some sort of propaganda, and they wonder if it's really worth it to quit. So some of the data on mortality connected to smoking is a bit old, and the new data is needed to answer the question, how will smoking affect my health, and what are the benefits of quitting? If I quit, will I really improve my chances of not dying from smoking-related illness? And just so everyone is clear, the benefits of quitting smoking are well-established. This was not a randomized controlled trial about whether or not you should quit smoking. Those benefits are well-established, but Contemporary data on mortality from smoking and the benefits of smoking cessation, especially in different ethnic and gender groups, does not exist. You know, an example might be that old data on quitting smoking would have looked at cardiovascular mortality, but now in the era of high-intensity statins, aspirin, revascularization, our cardiovascular mortality numbers are very different. So how does smoking interact with that in, you know, right now in our current medical climate? So those are the kinds of questions that I was interested in answering, and I was really happy this article came out so I could read it. So John, before we get started, what do you tell your patients if they ask you something like, how bad is smoking for me really? Or my pap smoked all his life and he lived to be 83. It never affected him. Like, is smoking really as bad as they say? What do you tell people? Certainly, I do think people get lulled into a sense of like compliance with smoking if they've been doing it for a long period of time. Everyone has that story of one of their, yeah, you're right, their pap that lived to 99 and he died of getting hit by a bus, right? But, but that's not the average person. I often find that, you know, my patients kind of in recovery, they often are doing well in terms of their drug of choice or alcohol choice, and they're still smoking. And they always kind of take the stance like, well, this is the lesser of the two evils. And they're often very surprised when I kind of tell them that, you know, the number one cause of death of IV drug users is tobacco related complications. It's not overdose. And many times they've actually been like, they were kind of blown away. They had no idea, right? Because you think of the overdose risk, that's kind of like a now and immediate concern, but that's not what kind of hurts most of these people to die of a tobacco related complication over, I don't want to, I don't want to steal your thunder, but it's a, it's a large percent, right? As we know, and you're going to, you're going to break down for us further. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people. It's a lot of people. As opposed to like active drug use where it's like one to 3% per year risk of mortality. So, you know, you're, you're looking at very different numbers. That is true. Yeah. And I, I tell people that too. They say, well, what about, you know, my pap pap, he smokes and he's still fine. And why didn't, why doesn't he have a problem with smoking so bad for you? And I tell people, look, he got lucky, but like you said, the average person in general, even if smoking doesn't kill you, you can end up with smoking-related morbidity, you know, lung disease, heart disease, other disease. So yeah, definitely we hear, we're saying it here on a podcast, we do not support tobacco use. We think you should quit smoking if you're listening. All right, let's talk about the clinical question. 
So this was a prospective cohort study, and it set out to quantify the relationship between smoking, smoking cessation, and mortality, and looked at subgroups of race, ethnicity, and sex. So the population was people in the U.S. National Health Interview Survey and also records from the National Death Index, and data was collected between 1997 and 2018, so over a 21-year period. The U.S. National Health Interview Survey is interesting. It's a questionnaire, and it's designed to be representative of the U.S. population overall with regards to age, sex, and ethnicity. So the population in this study is supposed to represent the U.S. population. It includes adults age 25 to 84, and they had to live in the U.S., of course, and be in this study. They looked at demographics. So the people in this study, mean age at recruitment was 49. 56% were women, 65% were white, 14% were black, and 16% were Hispanic. And that represents the U.S. ethnic breakdown overall. The exposure in this group was self-reported smoking status at recruitment when you first entered this study. They also looked at your age of quitting smoking, how many years since you quit smoking. And there are just some definitions you might be interested in. They counted people as never smokers if they had smoked fewer than 100 cigarettes in your lifetime. So you could have smoked a tiny bit, but fewer than 100 cigarettes made you a never smoker. You had to not smoke at all to be a quitter, and they subdivided it into your age of quitting. So groups who quit under age 35, between age 35 and 44, age 45 to 54, etc. They broke up the quitters into these age groups, and then they also broke them up into groups of quitting duration, like how many years has it been since you quit? Five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, or even more than 35 years. Current smokers were defined as anyone who is still smoking. And they did within five years of death, because a lot of people do quit smoking prior to death, especially if they're dying from a smoking-related disease like lung cancer or COPD. And if you include those as quitters, you might think that quitting smoking actually leads to death you get a higher death rate among people who quit smoking. But there's a concern that that's because they quit because of such severe smoking-related illness. So if you were still smoking within five years of your death, you were counted as a current smoker. They compared the current smokers to never smokers. And the outcomes they looked at were all-cause mortality, mortality from cancer, mortality from cardiovascular disease, lower respiratory disease, and they adjusted for smoking status, and they weighted all the data by race, ethnicity, and sex. So just to summarize again, the clinical question is, what's the relationship between smoking, smoking cessation, and mortality by race, ethnicity, and sex? So John, what did you think of the clinical question? I mean, I, I think it's, you know, this, it's an old question that we've talked about before, kind of basically, what is your risk for smoking? I think this is the first time I've ever seen it where it's been broken down by uh, gender, but also by kind of race. So I think that's interesting to see. Whenever you seem to do that, certainly it kind of unpacks a lot there, right? So like race is more than just kind of like the color of your skin or your genetics. It also kind of also indirectly re- reflects social determinants of health, kind of access to medical care. So I'm interested to see what they say about that. So let's talk about whether the trial is valid. So first off, some strengths. Um, The association between smoking and mortality is well-established. This is not an experimental or questionable thing to look at. Um, It was a very large study. It had 551,388 participants, and it was over a very long period of time, 21 years. So a lot of people over a lot of years. They did some analyses and adjusted their 
data by age, education level, and alcohol consumption, because often alcohol and tobacco go together. And like I said before, this data set, the U.S. National Health Interview Survey, was specifically designed to be representative of the U.S. population overall. So that improves our generalizability to our own patients. The groups were clearly defined. They did conduct a sensitivity analysis, and they counted those who quit within five years of death as former smokers instead of current smokers. And that did not change the overall outcomes. I also thought these outcomes were clinically relevant. They looked at death. I mean, if you're going to talk about the most clinically relevant outcome, that's definitely it. They had pretty good completeness. Only 4% had insufficient data for mortality follow-up, and only 2.3% were excluded for missing data. So they had complete data on more than 95% of people in this study. A few weaknesses here. I mean, it was a prospective cohort study rather than a randomized control trial, but we're not really going to do any randomized control trials on tobacco use anymore. There was also some concerns about what you call reverse causality bias. So participants with smoking-related illness might recall early life smoking with higher frequency. So if you have heart disease or lung disease, you might say, oh yeah, I definitely smoke. Whereas if you're totally fine, you might not really mention the 100 cigarettes you smoked in college. You might, in fact, not even remember them. So, you know, I think that's, that's something that they definitely worried about. Also, smoking, of course, was self-reported in this study, and smoking status was collected at a single point in time. So participants maybe could have quit or could have started smoking during the study, and it wouldn't necessarily have been captured. They didn't account for geography, and of course, there could be confounding with other variables. And opioid use disorder is a big one, like you said, a huge number of people developed opioid use disorder over the course of this study and died from opiate use disorder. A lot of smokers passed away, you know, to the tune of recently 100,000 plus a year people dying. And a lot of them were tobacco users, but they're dying from opiate use disorder. So that may be overestimating the mortality connected to tobacco. And finally, there was no blinding because this was a prospective cohort study. But I think overall it was valid, especially given that it was a prospective cohort study. What did you think? Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting from like a cohort standpoint, right? Certainly large data set. We, we've seen these studies a couple times now in Journal Club. Large data set, you know, non-biased in terms of funding or source of data, long follow-up. I mean, these kind of big epidemiological studies are interesting for kind of answering these kind of questions. I, I think, you know, you talk about the reverse causality bias. I, th- I think they also kind of alluded to the fact that probably more people probably quit smoking than was captured here. So I guess you're self-reported at one point in time. Uh, people tend not to pick up smoking as you get older. They tend to quit the, the older they get. So certainly there's probably some lost data there. But otherwise, I think it was a very valid study. Great. Well, let's look at the results then. So the first interesting thing to come out of this paper when I was reading it was current smoking prevalence. So overall in the U.S., about 20% of Americans smoke. of Americans are former smokers. The highest smoking rate is among non-Hispanic Black men, which was 25.7%. And the lowest smoking rate was among Hispanic women, which was 9.7%. So again, about 20% of Americans are current smokers at this point in time. And here's a summary. The main result is that smoking was associated with excess mortality in all groups. We knew that already. And smoking cessation was associated with lower mortality. We also already knew that, but this study confirmed it and it put some hard numbers on it. So quitting before age 45 was associated with a reduction in 
90%, a reduction by 90% of the excess mortality risk from smoking. So if you quit before age 45, you pretty much had the same mortality as someone who had never smoked. If you quit between the ages of 45 and 65, you had a reduction of 66%, so about two-thirds of that excess risk. So you can tell your patients, like, if you quit before, you know, when you're relatively young, before age 45, you will have the same health as someone who never smoked. So that's amazing. And that's a great thing to be able to tell people. And if you quit later, there's still a lot of benefit to be had with quitting. Another thing my patients might be interested in knowing is what percentage of deaths of smokers are attributable to smoking. So in people who have ever smoked, 44% of their deaths are attributable to smoking. That's 52.2% of deaths from cancer, 35% of deaths from cardiovascular disease, and 87% of deaths from lower respiratory disease are attributed to smoking in people who have ever smoked. That's kind of a lot. Among current smokers, 60% of deaths are attributable to smoking. Again, that's pretty huge. I, I often was telling my patients it was more like 50%, but from this study, it's 60% of deaths among smokers are attributable to smoking. So of the deaths, 31% of deaths among men and 22% of deaths among women in the U.S. are attributable to smoking. Um, white men have the highest smoking-related mortality at 33.2% of white men die from smoking-related causes, which is pretty unbelievable. The next thing they talked about in this study is the benefits of quitting. So that was the depressing part. Here's the positive part. If you quit 15 years before you entered this study, so people who had quit you know, at least 15 years when the study started, they had a reduction in their excess risk of 90%. So once you hit 15 years without smoking, your risk is basically back to uh, non-smokers. Quitting between 5 and 14 years was associated with a 50% reduction in the excess risk. And just as a aside, the average age to quit smoking in the study was 38. And the older you are when you quit, the less benefit you got. So quitting smoking really does eliminate the excess risk. There is no such thing as it's too late to quit smoking. You get a benefit, even if you're over 45, even if you're getting older, you still get a benefit from quitting smoking. Then they divided up the data by race and they compared all-cause mortality in current versus never smokers. And there was a bunch of data. I'm not going to kind of read it all out loud, but a few interesting findings I'm going to share. The highest increase in mortality from smoking was among whites. They had a three times higher mortality between current and never smokers. So smoking really increased mortality among people who are white. Blacks, Hispanics, and other races had a lower increased mortality. Smoking kind of doubled their risk of death, whereas within whites, it almost tripled it. So I thought that was an interesting uh, division by race. So just to conclude, current smoking was associated with at least twice the all-cause mortality of never smoking. Quitting smoking was associated with a substantial reduction in risk. There were no differences in the risk increases when stratified by sex. So men and women basically suffered the same from smoking. And there was increased mortality among white participants, and they had the greatest reduction in mortality from quitting. So John, does this mirror what you see in your practice? I'll be honest with you. I was kind of uh, surprised by a couple things. I think that that number certainly strikes you pretty hard about the 60% of deaths amongst current smokers are attributable to smoking. I think that's a number that definitely resonates and I'm going to be honest with you, I was kind of surprised that Caucasians and the white patients had the highest risk. I feel like I'm, I'm not sure what to make of that or where that came from, or does that reflect the fact that they 
have less other kind of health issues that are, are going on or, or less other social determinants or barriers to health? Or is that truly just they're more higher at risk based upon their genetics? It's, it's kind of an interesting fact, right? Right. And white people didn't have the highest smoking rate, but they did have the greatest increase in mortality from smoking. And right. Why is that? I can't imagine there's a huge genetic difference in our response to a toxin like tobacco. So you wonder what social factors lead to white people having higher mortality from smoking, right? Is it a mixture with alcohol? Is it, you know, something as simple as what type of cigarettes people tend to smoke, smoking at work versus not, you know, what kind of jobs people have? Who knows? I'm sure someone knows, but I don't know. Yeah, because you know what you never hear? You never hear a study showing that the group, the race with the worst health outcomes are white, right? That just isn't anything you see anywhere else in medical literature. So I think that was an interesting takeaway point for me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. If anyone out there knows why that is, please send us an email. So finally, are these results going to help me in patient care? So this study will probably cause a few changes in my patient care regarding how I counsel patients about smoking cessation. First off, since this study was designed to be nationally representative, my patients are similar to those in this study. My older white patients, especially who I see a lot of, they're at highest risk from smoking-related mortality. I thought the outcome was clinically relevant, which is mortality. One thing my patients would also want to know, though, is the risk of smoking-related diseases other than death that don't kill you but really impact your quality of life. The big one I think of is COPD. I have several patients with really severe COPD who just suffer quite a lot, and the COPD may or may not be the cause of death, but it really is impacting their quality of life. So my patients would be interested in that data as well, I think. This study lets me tell people that 60% of smokers will die from smoking, but that they can reduce that risk almost entirely by quitting. If they quit for greater than 15 years, they basically have eliminated the excess risk from smoking. So that's something very positive I can tell people. And I can tell them with confidence that the sooner they quit, the better. So John, do you think this study will change how you counsel patients? Yeah, actually I've used a couple of points from this. I mean, smoking comes all the time. We're in South Central Pennsylvania. Tobacco rates are relatively high here. Um, compared to, I think, other areas. Um, So this topic comes up all the time. I think my patients that smoke, I think they know that whenever a health issue comes up related to smoking, that they're also going to get a little bit of information about smoking cessation. And it's interesting. Eventually, some people do make a change. You wear them down enough. I think they deep down want to change. Certainly, the 60% chance of mortality from tobacco-related complications, that's a number that really resonates with people. And so that's kind of very interesting. On the flip side, too, I do have a lot of patients that, you know, they'll come in, they're like healthy in their 50s or 60s, and they're concerned about a tobacco-related complication because they smoked in their 20s or in their late teens. And I think I can kind of give them some reassurance that probably at this point, the risk is not quite that of a non-smoker, but similar. Yeah. I mean, I'm committed to keep pushing smoking cessation on my patients with opiate use disorder, too. A lot of them kind of laugh at me like, oh, I gave up heroin and you can't leave me alone now. And I say, nope, we're just going to keep talking about tobacco use because it is a huge risk for them. And it is something that we can help with. And we have evidence-based medications that help people quit smoking. And we have a lot of tools available to us in our area and in our health system. So I think I definitely will be continuing, if not intensifying my efforts to help people quit smoking. Um, I don't want to nag them too much, but I just can't. I just can't hear about people smoking without saying something about it. We were actually talking uh, with a addiction counselor that I work with today, how a lot of the patients on our video visits are like smoking on the video visit. 
So I've a lot of people, they don't smoke in the doctor's office, but once they're doing the video visits from home, I see them smoking and it gives me another opportunity to uh, bug them about it. I don't know. I don't think I'm nagging them, but I think I'm trying to help them. And I think that that's what they realize. And certainly you come to, you're, you're, you're coming to an office visit to get help with your health, right? So, and probably that's the best thing you can do is quitting smoking. So we're going to talk about it. You're nagging them with, with love, right? Yeah. Just like I have patients that they don't want to vaccinate their children. And we talk about that, like every well visit, I know their feelings, but every well visit, you know, once a year we have a discussion about it again. And I mean, that's what they're coming to me for. Right. So, and sometimes people change their minds. So that's why it's worthwhile having those tough conversations. Well, and the nice thing about smoking cessation is at this point, most people who smoke, at least the people I interact with, would like to not smoke. You know, they're, they know that they're addicted. They know it's really hard to quit. They may not want to go through the process of quitting, but they don't really want to be smokers. It's expensive, it's inconvenient, and they know it's bothering their health. So we kind of all agree on that. And I'm always happy when someone does finally kind of take that step and say, okay, I'm ready to try. I think it's going to change too. I think that some of it too is recovery community has a culture change, right? So you drive by any church or or meeting hall where there's an AA meeting, what's everyone doing during the break? They're outside smoking. Um, And I think it was previously viewed as like a more acceptable vice from whatever they were doing beforehand. I think it was just last year that ASAM updated their their guidelines to incorporate tobacco cessation into a treatment plan for opioid use disorder. So I think that like slowly we're going to get there, but I do think it, it requires kind of shifting mentality from what it's been for so many years. Right. And there's a lot of, I know drug treatment centers now are starting to be tobacco free. So that's been a sea change as well. And I've heard of people not wanting to go to inpatient treatment because the thought of quitting smoking was just so painful on top of everything else that they would forego treatment rather than have to deal with tobacco cessation at the same time as everything else. Well, thanks for presenting that. That was great. Very practical article for us, right? And everyone in the office on the day-to-day. Right. And great for all you PCPs out there. All right. So we got uh, a comment from our Facebook group, Dr. Jane Lubschitz. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name. Um, about episode 21, which was about using hydromorphone for patients with opioid use disorder in the hospital. She said, really enjoyed the podcast. We've been prescribing standing oxycodone to help erase the opioid deficit and decrease craving for patients who either don't want MOUD or that uh, we are starting on methadone. The one thing that we have seen is that the various teams, especially surgery, doesn't quite understand that this isn't a primary pain treatment. I could see that kind of being a, being a kind of a barrier for some people. Certainly, like when we covered that article, one thing we talked about was I think that kind of this is somewhat counterintuitive to, I think, how a lot of people have been trained and there's a lot of culture shift at the hospitals. I think that people uh, view patients with kind of opioid use disorder as we need to be like more strict or more diligent with opioids. And I think that, you know, I think the article and kind of practices are kind of changing where we need to kind of meet them where they're at. So hopefully the the surgery team will get on board with you soon. They're good people too. Surgeons are good people too. They are good people. We love you, surgery. I I think we are seeing a culture change though. I was speaking to one of our residents earlier this week and I think our residents are becoming more comfortable prescribing opioids to people with opiate use disorder while they're inpatient. They're much more relaxed about it and just want to help keep people comfortable. And they're much less comfortable with outpatient opioids. They will like barely give you anything at hospital discharge. They're very, very reluctant to uh, discharge people on 
opioids or prescribe opioids in the outpatient, sometimes maybe even more than necessary. So we've definitely seen a huge change there. It is funny with the pendulum swing, right? I feel like that there's times where I'm by by no means am I like a liberal opioid prescriber, although I do have people in chronic pain that use it appropriately. And, you know, I monitor according to CDC guidelines, but uh, certainly there's times I'm like, wow, I'm like, so that trauma patient with the humeral and femoral neck fracture, I'm like three days, huh? That's all you're going to give them. Okay. Yeah. See them in the office in day two, then we'll see how they're doing. Yeah, it's true. And I appreciate everybody's efforts to reduce opioid prescribing because I think the um, the medical community was a huge driver of the opioid epidemic initially, and now it's just sort of taken off and we're we're just kind of on its coattails. But, but you're right, the pendulum has definitely swung away from outpatient opioid prescribing. And who knows where it's going to swing in another 20 years. Maybe then I'll just retire rather than have to adjust my practice again. I'm sure we'll have many more problems that we're going to contribute to between now and then. I can think of a few other things that are, are on the on the horizon. We're going to do any uh, articles about Adderall? You can get it right now. <sighs> well, thank you, John. Thank you for this discussion. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, send us your comments on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, email, or join our Facebook group. The links are in the show notes. Original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy, audio editing by Aaron McHugh, video production by Paul Kennedy, produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.